Skullnet News Digest Review of the Year 3307. The year 3307 was the year of the Admiral Vincent trial, of the Jupiter Division and of the Galactic Summit. It was the year of the rise of salvation and the fall of the NMLA and Theta-7. We learned about the 200-year-old biochemicals company Azima, its impact on recent history and about some truly horrific experiments. On the last day of 3306, human expansion from the bubble suffered a setback, with seemingly coordinated strikes by Thargoids in the Muscadark region and in the Witchhead Nebula. Only a few months earlier, the ghost ship Adamaster had pointed the way to what might have been the earliest confirmed encounters with Thargoids, and this, in turn, led the Alliance to expand rapidly into the Muscadark region and the adjacent Colsac Nebula to exploit the rich meta-alloy sources found there. The Sirius Corporation's subsidiary, Sirius Atmospherics, tagged along for the ride, apparently planning to terraform ammonia worlds. This plan seems to have been the trigger for the first Thargoid attack in 18 months. It wasn't until April 3307 that we began to find out more about Azimuth Biochemicals, the owner of the twin megaships Adamaster and Hesperus. The Hesperus was discovered abandoned and being picked apart by the Scrivener's Dredger Clan. Encrypted logs indicated an attempt by rival company Pharmasapien to take the Hesperus by force. A mysterious, self-proclaimed scientist calling themselves Salvation drove the investigation onwards, claiming that their discoveries would save all humanity. On the 12th of June, commanders working on a tip-off from Salvation discovered a crashed anaconda, the Proteus. This had been a tender to the Hesperus, and a small team of scientists had used it to escape from the megaship when Farmer Sapien attacked. The planet the Proteus was discovered on was unique. It had both Thargoid and Guardian technology and appeared to be the site of an ancient battle. It remains the only planet in the galaxy with direct evidence of conflict between the alien species. The logs found on the Proteus revealed that Azimuth was secretly researching ways of using alien technology to create superweapons and that the crew of the Proteus had, in fact, succeeded in creating just such a weapon 200 years before Aegis and then engineer Ramtar took their first steps towards integrating Guardian technology into anti-Zeno weapons. Now, had they not managed to kill everyone on board when this weapon malfunctioned, the course of history might have been very different. It appears that both the official anti-Zeno organisation Aegis and Salvation about whom the Pilots' Federation issued a stern warning, were trying to research this lost Guardian superweapon. Aegis had recently lost the megaship Alexandria, which was stuffed full of Guardian technology in mysterious circumstances, and both it and Salvation issued appeals for help in collecting new samples from the ancient battle site. 
commanders decisively elected to help salvation rather than Aegis. And it was this that helped shape the fortunes of these two entities for the rest of the year. Aegis was largely suspended to allow an inquiry into its inefficiency and mismanagement. Salvation, by contrast, was able on the 20th of September to test fire a prototype superweapon in the Kornsar system, a system that had been unexpectedly overrun by Thargoids. The Thargoids in that system were completely wiped out, either escaping or crashing. The response from the Thargoids seems to have been to invade even more systems, with the Pleiades being heavily targeted by Thargoids that proved harder to eliminate than any previous invasion. This gave Salvation an opportunity to strike again. On the 14th of December, when the Thargoids were eliminated from the Maya, Merope and Delphi systems. As the year draws to a close, it seems that the Thargoid threat is waning, but Salvation claims that they are preparing a solution to wipe out the Thargoid threat completely, sometime in 3308. Meanwhile, Professor Alba Tezro, who'd recently resigned as head of research from Aegis, has been working with engineer Ramtar to reverse engineer Salvation's superweapon amid concerns that Salvation may be using unethical or dangerous technology against the Thargoids. At the end of August, the long-standing mystery of Hyford's cash in Colonia was finally solved, and the story behind it links into both the 200-year-old story of Azimuth biochemicals and the Guardian Thargoid battle, and the current work to develop a superweapon by salvation. Commander Hyford had been employed in 3302 and 3303 to transport human test subjects to a secret research base called Oaken Point in HIP 26176. Project Seraph, which appears to have been run by a Professor Thomas Dawn for azimuth biochemicals 200 years after it was believed to have ceased to exist, had captured a Thargoid scout ship and was attempting to use cranial implants on human test subjects to allow them to fly the alien ship. Dozens of test subjects died in the process, and Dawn seems to have regarded them with as little compassion as he would lab rats. Dawn's aim was the same as Salvation's four years later, to wipe out the Thargoids once and for all. In Dawn's case, he would use the Thargoid technology against its creators. Some limited progress was made before the captured Thargoid scout stopped working. Azimuth's military wing, the Black Flight, based at Fort Ash in HIP 22460, attempted to capture another scout, but they were overtaken by events. In May 3303, Azimuth and the Black Flight were no longer able to conceal the gathering presence of Thargoids around the Pleiades, including much larger and more dangerous Thargoid interceptors, and the order was given to shut down the project and withdraw. The Black Flight megaship Overlook appears to have been attacked and destroyed by Thargoids before it could escape. Just who was in charge of Project Seraph remains a mystery. The logs refer to someone called the Witch. The whereabouts of Professor Thomas Dawn is also unknown, although his obsession for building a super weapon to use against the Thargoids may mean that in the intervening four years he has developed links with either Aegis or with Salvation. 
3308 is likely to see either the triumph of humanity over the Thargoids at the hands of Salvation, or the unmasking of Salvation, if, as Professor Tesro posits, they have good reason for concealing the true nature of this superweapon. Developments in this story are likely to have a massive impact on humanity, for better or for worse. Galnet News Digest, Review of the Year 3307 The year 3307 was the year we found out about the shady history of azimuth biochemicals. We met the Dredger Clans for the first time. The Colonia Bridge was constructed and the Thargoids began their second invasion of the 34th century. But in the Empire, all anyone was talking about was the Republican terrorists and the Imperial Succession. Until September 3306, no one in the Empire gave the liberal political fringe a second thought. There were certainly a few people in the outer systems who wanted to restore the Public of Aknar, founded by Marlin Duval and overthrown by her brother, Henson Duval, the first Emperor, more than a thousand years ago. But they weren't important people, and their views weren't important. The Empire could tolerate a little inconsequential sedition, 1,000 years of imperial tradition wasn't going to be shaken by a few people who thought they knew better than their superiors. So, when a fringe group of Marlinists calling themselves the NMLA started blowing up starports using Thargoid caustic enzyme bombs, the Empire was caught off guard. Senator Denton Petraeus responded by forcing the systems where Marlinism was endemic into lockdown and by conducting a series of brutal purges where being a Marlinist meant you were considered a terrorist. In consequence, hundreds of thousands of Marlinist sympathisers fled the Empire and were eventually resettled in their own colony after the intervention of the Sirius Corporation. The Marlinists were unsure of their long-term goals, but they were at least safe. The NMLA hadn't gone away, however. As 3307 began, the Empire was quietly confident it had the terrorists under control, and with good reason. They'd secretly detained the ringleaders of the terror campaign and were holding them in a secret and illegal interrogation camp outside Imperial borders. But at the end of February, a group of terrorists known to their captors as the Theta Group, led by Theta 7, somehow managed to escape. There is no doubt that they had outside help from someone high up in Imperial society. The logs left behind by the Imperial guards before they were brutally tortured and killed. Tell of an Imperial transport arriving full of guards dressed in Imperial uniforms who gunned down the guards at the Serene Harbour interrogation camp and who used high authority overrides to unlock the inmates. It remains unclear who in the Empire sponsored their escape but the Landgrave of Madrid is a key suspect. While they were in prison, the Empire held all the cards, but somehow it allowed the terrorists to escape, to resume their bombing campaign. A month later, on the 11th of March, the NMLA perpetrated the largest and most destructive bombing ever, 
During the so-called Nine Martyrs campaign, nine starports were bombed, including three Imperial, three Federal, two Alliance and one independent station in retribution for the NMLA's own earlier attack on the federal station Kepler Orbital, where a number of NMLA suspects were being held. The NMLA bombed the station to kill its own members and to save them from interrogation, and it was now taking revenge on humanity as a whole. Federal Vice President Brad Mitchell was killed in the bombings, and it was his successor, Jerome Archer, who put in place draconian surveillance laws to prevent terrorism that later threatened the stability of the Federation. The Affiliated Counter-Terrorism Unit, ACT, was set up by the superpowers to track down and eliminate the NMLA. The NMLA was eventually tracked down to the Madrid system whence it had been receiving logistical help from the Landgrave, and a pitch battle took place during which the NMLA sympathisers were roundly defeated the Theta Group managed to escape and, in the process, ambushed and killed ACT leader Captain Neve Setonia. Not to be outdone in all this pointless killing, the Federation believed rumours that Hadrian Duval, leader of the isolationist Nova Imperium political group in the Paresa system within the Empire, might have been bankrolling the NMLA terrorists. Duval, considered an outsider, to the Duval dynasty had no sympathy for the Republicans, but this didn't stop the rumours. On the 6th of May, the Federation attacked deep within Imperial territory, hoping to arrest Imperator Duval. The attack was unsuccessful, and the Federation was left diplomatically and militarily compromised. They probably felt even sillier when, in October, the final starport bombing carried out by the NMLA was against Hadrian Duval. Imperesa clearing Hadrian of all suspicion of having been involved with the terrorists. The last big hope for the NMLA was to persuade the Marlinist colonists to vote for the political wing of the NMLA when the Marlinism Reformation Party under Minister Aaron White failed in July to get its candidate elected to the role of Marlinist consul. The retribution was swift and damaging. Two key starports in Marlinist space were bombed, leading to a massive loss of life, including that of First Minister Jenna Fairfax. The Marlinism Reformation Party was declared illegal, and a short and bloody civil war ensued, during which the NMLA supporters were routed. Olivia Volkov, who replaced Jenna Fairfax, proclaimed victory and announced the death of Aaron White on the 19th of August. Unknown to the rest of the galaxy, the Theta Group had already gone into hiding following their failure in the Marlinist election. Theta 7 and his close circle were travelling incognito on a far god megaship, the Sacrosanct. Some believe that it was Theta 7 who persuaded the fatalist pacifist doom cultist to build the megaship in the first place. The bombing of Parisa was carried out by NMLA members without assistance from the Theta Group. It was when a small band of NMLA members in the Marlinist colonies seized back their former flagship, the Steel Majesty, and made a desperate last stand in the Madrid system that Theta 7 finally decided to show his hand. He hijacked the Far God pilgrimage ship Sacrosanct and brought it to Madrid with the intention of rejoining 
the NMLA fighters. However, the firepower of the Epsilon Phanasis Empire group made it impossible for them to meet up. And when the Marines of Act boarded and retook the Steel Majesty, and after members of the Far God cult sabotaged their ship's hyperdrive, making escape impossible. Theta-7 chose to commit suicide, using his remaining caustic enzyme charges to destroy the Sacrosanct and everyone on board. The story of the NMLA appears to have come to an end. The story of the Marlinist colonies is only just beginning. Also just beginning is the life of a prospective new heir for the Imperial Throne. Neither Emperor Orissa nor Princess Ashling Duval have any children, so the birth of a son to former Nova Imperium leader Hadrian Duval and his wife Lady Astrid Minerva, eight months after their marriage in April, may well have given Hadrian a leg up in his ambition to become Emperor. He'd shrewdly ditched Nova Imperium a few weeks earlier when he accepted senatorial protection from the NMLA, and he seems to be getting on pretty well with Princess Ashling, who offered him first aid after an attempt on his life in November 3306. Far from being an outsider, Prince Hadrian may now be the favourite to succeed Emperor Orissa. By their actions, the NMLA may have changed the future of the Empire, but not at all in the direction they intended. Galnet News Digest Review of the Year 3307 The biggest news stories of 3307 were Salvation and the NMLA. The Federation had its share of stories too. The events surrounding the disappearance of Starship One were finally explained. The CEO of Core Dynamics attempted to take over the Federation and a poorly thought out piece of legislation threatened to tear the Federation apart. As 3307 began, Fleet Admiral Vincent stood trial for his part in the sabotage of Starship One and the attempted assassination of Federal President Jasmina Halsey back in May 3301. He'd been implicated by naval technician Rory Webster, who admitted tampering with the ship's hyperdrive, but who in a plea bargain named Vincent as the person who ordered the work. Vincent a close personal friend of the then Shadow President Zachary Hudson had been suspected of undermining President Halsey in 3300 and earlier in 3301 by getting her involved in unwinnable conflicts over Onionhead. Former President Halsey, the intended assassination target and who lost a position as Federal President to Hudson, while she was missing, presumed dead returned from the Alliance to Mars for the trial and gave evidence against Vincent. Her evidence and financial records she presented showed that Vincent had accepted massive bribes from military ship manufacturer Core Dynamics to remove Halsey from office. The joint motive appears to have been that Halsey had been planning defence cuts that would have hit both the Federal fleet and the company that builds the ships. In particular, 
CoreDynamic CEO Jupiter Rochester was implicated in the scandal. As part of the Rochester dynasty, that includes his mother Isolde, who is congressman for Altair, and federal ambassador to the Empire, Jordan, Rochester comes from one of the most influential families in the Federation. Vincent was found guilty and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Rochester, whom some conspiracy theorists believe was part of a club that manipulates galactic events to suit their own purposes, would no doubt have been arrested and faced trial too, but he escaped before federal agents could act. Rochester didn't just run away from justice. He took some of his best engineers from Core Dynamics with him to permit-locked HIP 54530, where he began setting up an operation that planned to replace the democratic government of the Federation with a corporate-run model, with himself as the Supreme Executive. In early February, the Federal Intelligence Agency sent forces to HIP 54530 to arrest Rochester. He was duly taken into custody and on the 5th of March was given a summary sentence of solitary life imprisonment by the Federal Justice Department. To the surprise of the Federal Attorney's Office, which would have preferred the facts of the case, including details of any co-conspirators, to become public. Conspiracy theorists have suggested that Rochester was silenced to prevent him implicating Hudson or other members of his alleged club. The Jupiter Division, without Rochester at its head, made an attempt to take over the Tsautach system in June, but was defeated a second and final time. The corporatist movement is presumed defunct. A consequence of the Vincent trial and the corporatist wars was that Lacon Spaceways, which was on the verge of being taken over by Core Dynamics, was able to retain its independence with Alliance financial assistance. It relocated to Alioth shortly after. Despite the deep humiliation experienced by the Rochester family, the congressman and the ambassador retained their jobs. One-time Federal President Halsey accepted a role as Federal Ambassador to the Alliance. She also retracted her New Age remarks about the caretakers of our galaxy that she made in April 3302, shortly after being released from eight months floating in an escape pod. Federal Ambassadors are not expected to do drugs. President Hudson, who gained the presidency as a result of the assassination attempt, escaped without being implicated in the scandal and remains president. Following the NMLA Nine Martyrs bombing that killed his predecessor Brad Mitchell, the new federal vice president Jerome Archer took extreme action to try to prevent future terrorist attacks within federal space. He introduced the Domestic Counter-Terrorism Act, which created the legal framework for the new Proactive Detection Bureau of the Federal Intelligence Agency to intercept and read every communication with at least one party inside federal space, and to arrest people who were judged by the automated monitoring software to be planning to commit a crime. Despite a need for greater security, the potential impact 
on civil liberties caused disquiet in some circles, with Shadow President Felicia Winters providing a rallying point for those who opposed the act. Rumours of students getting arrested for researching federal politics and history online did little to improve perceptions. Archer hailed increased arrest rates as proof of the act's effectiveness, while opponents noted that it was finding enemies in the Federation that didn't exist, and simultaneously completely failing to help track down the NMLA. A number of disaffected factions chose to leave the Federation as a result of the privacy implications of the Proactive Detection Bureau. There were also allegations that the PDB was treating secessionists, those who wanted their factions to leave the Federation, as criminals, and was having them arrested. The Federation later stepped up the pressure by actively, and entirely unsuccessfully, waging war on several of the factions that wanted to leave. Hudson and Archer had another prize in their sights. Former Federal Admiral Yuri Grom. Delta Pavonis, which had previously been a federal system and which is now independent, had invited Grom and the Federation to discuss possible assistance that they might be able to offer the system. During diplomatic talks, a team of soldiers working directly for Hudson attempted to arrest Grom, whom the Federation regards as a traitor. The move plunged the system into a brief war, at the end of which Yuri Grom was free and the Federal Megaship had been taken over by the EG Union. The Federation's own diplomatic corps roundly condemned Hudson's actions. In the light of this fiasco, Hudson must have been delighted when several thousand domestic terrorists were conveniently discovered by the PDB during the course of the following week. It, it transpired that these were remnants of the Jupiter Division corporatist movement and may have posed an actual threat to the Federation. Demands for the repeal of the Domestic Counter-Terrorism Act continue, but it's no longer seen as a reason for factions to leave the Federation. To a large degree, the federal populace have become used to being snooped on, and the actual arrest of a small number of actual terrorists may have swung the balance of opinion towards retaining the PDB. For now, at least. Galnet News Digest Review of the Year 3307 The Alliance was working away quietly during 3307, extending its influence diplomatically and expanding into areas with unique resources and xenological opponents. It continued its partnership with the Sirius Corporation, as did a rather unlikely newcomer to the diplomatic scene. Archon Delane, the Pirate King. It was Sim Guru Pranavantal of the Utopia Commune who came up with the idea of a galactic summit, but it was Lee Yong-Rui and the Sirius Corporation that made it happen. Sirius offered a neutral place for galactic leaders to discuss, as the Simguru put it, the four dark horsemen, interstellar war, terrorism, alien incursion and economic collapse. The great and good of galactic politics duly turned up for a month-long summit in Sirius 
the great and the good did not include the Emperor. But she did send her Chancellor, Anders Blaine, Princess Ashling Duval, and Senator Denton Petraeus. The new Marlinist colonies sent First Minister Jenna Fairfax and Minister Aaron White, who would later lead the unsuccessful attempt to politicise the NMLA. President Hudson and Shadow President Winters both attended, as did the new Federal Ambassador to the Alliance, Jasmina Halsey. Winters did not invite Shadow Vice President Isolde Rochester to attend, in the wake of the arrest of her son, Jupiter. Prime Minister Edmund Mahan caused unrest in the Alliance by postponing the Prime Ministerial election for three months, so it would not coincide with the summit. For Mahan, the key talking point was Thargoids. The Alliance, more than any of the powers, had expanded into areas rich in Thargoid barnacle sites in order to harvest the Thargoid meta-alloys. And the Alliance, more than any of the powers, was suffering attacks by Thargoids. The only place it had not suffered attacks from Thargoids, despite their abundance there, was the California Nebula, which is a demonstration that if you only build outposts and surface bases, the Thargoids won't be any trouble at all. The most significant treaty signed at the summit was the Cornelius Lasky Convention, by which the three superpowers agreed to share information about large-scale threats to civilization. Mahan hoped to build on this through his draft Sirius Treaty for increased cooperation against the Thargoid threat by revitalising Aegis through proper funding. The treaty was never signed, following the abrupt ending to the summit a week earlier than planned. A surprise! and for some unwelcome visitor at the summit was Archon Delane, head of the Kumo crew, widely believed to be a dread pirate and an all-round nasty piece of work. Some of the delegate's security details offered to dispose of Delane and his boarding party, only to be reminded by their host that all delegates were entitled to diplomatic immunity. Delane proclaimed that he wished to become a respected member of the trading community, and that he wanted to be known as King Kumo. The summit ended early because of the security crisis caused by the Nine Martyrs bombings on the 11th of March. However, both Mahan and Delane left the summit with the promise of closer cooperation with the Sirius Corporation. Sirius subsidiary, Sirius Atmospherics, had already assisted the Alliance expansion into the Muscadart region, but this was an opportunity for even further expansion. Archon Delane was first to benefit. Sirius assisted in building five new starports in locations as far apart as the California Nebula and Colonia. In each case, Sirius retained a presence in the newly commissioned stations, and there was at least a hint that the collaboration would go further. Early in July, a dredger owned and run by the Blue Viper Club turned up at one of the Kumo crew's new starports. They had developed a new wonder drug called Helix, and they wanted Delane to help them market it. Analysis of the drug showed that it was a new variant of the galaxy's narcotic of choice, Onion Head. This new easy-to-grow variant of Onion Head could be grown in specialised facilities in anarchy systems around the galaxy, so it would not be a rare good. There were strong rumours that Sirius Logistics were behind the manufacture and distribution of this new drug, and that Delane was only the front man. But Sirius and the Kumo crew didn't get it all their own way. 
once the Interstellar Health Organization had verified that onion head gamma strain had genuine medicinal uses, neo-medical industries won the right to manufacture and distribute the drug for medicinal use from several industrial economies in Alliance space. Regardless of its reason for purchase, onion head gamma strain remains illegal in the Federation Empire and in some Alliance systems. It is known to be used widely for recreational purposes, including by wealthy and influential people in Federal and Imperial society. Before the Alliance could benefit from Sirius's helping hand, Mahan had first to win that delayed Prime Ministerial election. His opponent, Councillor Nakato Kane, believed that the Alliance should concentrate on the well-being of its core systems and should abandon its expansion into Thargoid territory. Had she won the election, then the Alliance might have withdrawn from the outlying nebulae and from conflict with the Thargoids. But despite significant unrest in some Alliance systems caused by Mahan's questionable postponement of the election, members of the Alliance Assembly voted him in for a second term the only serving Prime Minister ever to be re-elected. Apparently celebrating Mahan's victory, Sirius Corporation made a highly engineered, detailed surface scanner available for all to buy at human technology brokers across the galaxy. As with the pre-engineered frameshift drive that they financed at the end of February, Sirius may also have been courting the favour of independent commanders. Despite his electoral success, Mahan failed to get anything like enough financial backing from the market to build his five planned starports, receiving only just enough funding for one. So there was surprise when he announced the opening of two starports. Until, that is, it became apparent that Sirius Corporation hadn't just helped set up the second new Alliance starport, Prosperity Corps. It had funded it entirely. In return, it benefited from a long-term presence at the starport. Mahan's opponents have suggested that the Prime Minister may have unfulfilled obligations to Sirius after this helping hand. Sirius may seem to be a generous benefactor to the Kumo crew and the Alliance, but it is also, slowly but surely, increasing its hold over the galaxy and is close to becoming the fourth superpower. Gallant News Digest Review of the Year 3307 In the first four episodes of this review, we've talked about azimuth biochemicals and salvation, about the Marlinist colonies and about the NMLA, about Admiral Vincent and Jupiter Rochester being locked away for attempting to assassinate President Halsey, and about the Sirius Corporation expanding its influence. In this final episode, we look at where the galaxy might be headed next year. It seems certain that Salvation will attempt a major strike against the Thargoids in 3308. He's fired his superweapon four times, in each case clearing out an entire system. If he intends to deal with the Thargoids once and for all, what has he planned? Something to do the same? But on a galactic scale? Ironically, as 3307 draws to a close, the year-long invasion by Thargoids seems to be ending. Most of the attack stations have been repaired, and Thargoids seem to be little more than a minor nuisance. 
Admiral Aidan Tanner is under arrest for his unauthorised and unsuccessful attempt to find out what Salvation was up to. His one-time colleague, Professor Albert Tesro of the Akinar Research Council, and for four years the head of research at Aegis, may have better luck. She's currently working with Guardian technology specialist Ram Tar to reverse-engineer Salvation's technology, and they plan to reveal details in the hope that it will sway galactic opinion against Salvation. Salvation says he's a scientist, but has gone to extraordinary lengths to conceal his true identity. Some believe they may be the artificial intelligence that the ancient alien race, the Guardians, developed to fight off the Thargoids millions of years ago, and which subsequently eliminated the Guardians. We've heard little about the Guardians and their AI for several years, so there may be some credibility to this theory. Others believe that he may be someone who worked for Azimuth Biochemicals four years ago when they were trying to learn how to get humans to fly a Thargoid scout. Other suggestions are that he may be a disaffected member of Aegis, or that he might be one of the engineers. Will he finally be unmasked in 3308? For that matter, who is the witch? The person sponsoring the Azimuth work in 3303. She if it is a she, has seemingly vanished, her identity entirely unknown. The Neo-Marlinists seem to have been defeated once and for all, but there are plenty of conspiracy theorists who believe that Theta-7 faked his suicide. He's seen on video detonating the megaship Sacrosanct, but who's to know if he was really on board at the time? Emperor Arissa remains in hiding from the NMLA, even though they've apparently been defeated. The last time she was seen in public was in September 3306 when she spoke at the funeral of Prince Harold Duval. Everything she's done since then, every word she's passed down has been through her Chancellor, Anders Blaine. Is the Emperor well? Is she even still alive? Until she once again appears in public, we can't be sure. What we can be sure of is that should she die, then Hadrian Duval and his son Hector Mordanticus are likely to get a fair bit of support as her successor from the more traditional senators of the Empire. Their main competitor for the role, anti-slavery activist Princess Ashley, would be a bit of a problem as emperor of a society built almost entirely on indentured labour. In other imperial news, will the split between Senator Zemina Torval and Mustopolis Mining have a lasting impact? Will the revivified corpse of the 130-year-old Torval be content with amassing even more wealth using her army of slaves and a broad commercial network? Or will she use a substantial military fleet to make a mark on the galaxy? She's one of the people least likely to support a future Emperor Ashling. For the Federation, will Fleet Admiral Vincent and ex-Core Dynamics CEO Jupiter Rochester, who are both being held in solitary confinement, Rochester, without even having had a fair trial, get to spill the beans on what they know? Or are they really being looked after by a cabal more powerful than even the Federation? Will Hudson's part in the assassination attempt on his predecessor ever become public? The campaign by Brewer Corporation to establish a chain of megaships along a route between the Bubble and Colonia was a huge success in 3307. Brewer hopes to build on this, making tritium more widely available at the megaships and establishing starports with shipyards and fleet management facilities along the route. 
This opens up the possibility of commanders being permanently based in these starports along the Colonia Bridge, living the frontier lifestyle, possibly thousands of light years from the next starport. This initiative, which is expected to start in less than two weeks, will also give commanders another chance to earn a range of pre-engineered frameshift drives that are better than anything Farseer or Martok will do for the ordinary commander. 3307 was the year we got to meet the Dredger clans for the first time. The Scriveners seem harmless enough. They've been wandering the galaxy collecting knowledge for more than 200 years. Knowledge that they're not willing to share. The Blue Viper Club, Archon Delane's new best friends, seem to be more piratical in nature, allegedly crushing and recycling manned and operational ships if they can. And the Phagos Dredger clan, which we only know about through legends and through the incomplete report of a soldier at Holloway Bioscience Research Facility 15, are believed to be cannibals, munching their way around the galaxy one victim at a time. Will we see these dredger clans again? Or will we get to meet other equally fascinating clans in 3308? During 3307, some commanders were granted permits to get out of their ships on a limited number of planets, away from the main population centres, to visit settlements and undertake missions on foot that often seem to involve shooting people. The people who do all this shooting have been heard to mention that it might be nice if some aliens chose to invade on foot, something that would give a little more variety in the choice of targets. Commanders more interested in exploration than killing get to wander around looking for vegetables and shooting these instead, using a special knowledge gun. All they've ever found so far have been things rooted to the spot. When will we get to see space rabbits? The two-seater Scorpion surface vehicle was the first new vessel of any kind made available to buy since probably the launch of fleet carriers, and only the second model of surface vehicle that can be carried around in ships. Is this the first sign of a renaissance in the design of new vehicles? Will that fabled Panther Clipper, the only ship that actually requires a four-person crew, finally get the go-ahead for commercial release? There's little we can say for certain about 3308. We know that fleet carriers will soon come equipped with a viewing lounge, so we can all sit with a bucket of popcorn and something sickly sweet in a paper cup and watch the transition from one system to the next. The rest of the year is largely a tabula rasa, a blank sheet. Will it be as interesting a year as 3307? We'll have to wait and see. For now, here are some New Year fireworks, courtesy of that lovable art thief, the Winking Cat. Winking Cat.